Greetings and welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today we have on producer, engineer, composer, songwriter, John Heiler. How are you doing, man? Great, man. How are you? I'm just glad I could say your last name right. So <laughs> That makes already, you uh, in a select uh, elite uh, crew. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So I wanted to talk to you today. You, you've been on such an enormous amount of albums, you do your own stuff. And, and the state of music has been a little different too, with, with not just with COVID, but a lot of the digital changes. I know you, you're a computer guy and you love to build everything. I think we can kind of dig into a few things today. Absolutely. For the audience, if we could do the old tiny little bio for the people that aren't familiar with you. So we can jump in and just get totally sidetracked and be geeks. <laughs> totally. We're at the show. Just, just a tiny, just a tiny bio. We can. Absolutely. Um, I was raised in New York, born in New York City. I'm a fourth generation classical pianist. My background was originally classical. I went to conservatory for composition, but then I split all that and went to LA to start the world of working in recording studios. I was an early uh, expert on MIDI and I built some of the first MIDI production studios and the uh, also good at computers growing up. So those two uh, fields lined up pretty well. Um, cut my teeth in studios in LA for a long time, worked with a lot of great artists. Uh, then I went to Chicago for about 10 years uh, and worked with a lot of great bands there. And then back to LA um, and worked with even more great bands uh, and artists. And I've done some scoring for picture and sound design and all that other sort of fun stuff too. Um, I also consult other people and studios with their technical issues and help them out and that, you know, back end sort of thing as well. Um, uh, that's about it. I release music under uh, the rubric uh, aerosol. Uh, we've got a new record coming out soon. I'm very excited about work with the many great musicians on that and uh, also working with some other artists as a producer and mixer. So that's basically it in a nutshell. That's great. That's good. I mean, we can just go on and on. The links for all your stuff will be underneath it. I mean, right. the bands, the artists you've worked with, this is such a long list. It's such a varied list. You know, we don't need to do a, a detailed thing. But what, what was important <laughs> is what you talk about. What I really like is your, your creativeness, your inventiveness mixed with your technology, your love of technology, and your self complaint. Was it, you know, your, your Hackintosh? Or is it what do you call it? Your, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I use Hackintoshes. I, in fact, I just got my new one online uh, this week. So, geeking out a little bit on that one so that's fun my last one uh lasted me like nine years so i got my got my money's worth out of it that's for sure the problem is when you build that you're, you are your own support person too if there's a problem because no one understands what the heck you built no yeah that's okay i know i'm out there and the nosebleed seats with this stuff and uh, i wouldn't expect anybody else to follow accordingly it's uh it's not for the faint of heart that's for sure a lot of work a lot of hours a lot of coding you know but um i'm happy with the result and it works and that's all that matters right is that we have tools that uh, help us do our jobs right well you're actually making tools that's that's the interesting part i like and, and you, you're creating your own tools you know it'd be like a caveman else and you're like you, you go <laughs> you know they got rocks and you're like you go make yourself a spatula for cooking you know it's kind of like you want right. to <laughs> you got to fine tune it. I mean, you can do this, but you, you know, you come back, you're like, oh. <laughs> well, at, you know, it's true. But at the end of the day, they're only tools. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that's going to mean the work is any good. You know, that I've seen people with the best sets of tools make horrible work. And I've seen people with, you know, 
couple of fingers and a and a you know a baseball yeah. bat do great work. So uh, you know, it's not the uh, sword; it's the swordsman, I guess you'd say. I'd say that. I could arguably it also depends on the the journey of how it goes from the artist to the producer and the engineer and the tools. There's, I think it's a combination. If you get the perfect storm, you know, absolutely. That's really- could be the best because you can be the best artist but you, if the tools aren't right you can sound like crap too how many great great musicians with their first albums you can't listen to because they were done by you know or how many yeah. albums are like the worst yeah. sounds you're like oh, i love. I mean band, but- especially for people like you and me i think they can listen and sort of in our minds hear a production or a mix and, and separate those from the song i think most mostly the uninitiated uh react to the emotion of the song and they don't care too much you know uh about what technology went into it. We might say, oh, that's a terrible mix, but it's a, still a hit, you know. Uh, wasn't Prince uh, famous for not giving his engineers time to get proper levels and things would come out distorted and be very frustrating environment to work in as a technical person, but, you know, nobody cared in the long run, did they? No. Because it was no. Prince, yeah. You got, got away with it. And that's the thing, I think when I went to college for recording and, and spending a year or so, wherever it was, like down to, and really breaking down songs, after that, it just kind of ruined music. My, my levels are like, it's like almost going off to like culinary school. Like you just come back into the regular world. You're like, you hear things so different. Yes, absolutely. I used to joke about what it'd be like to sit through a movie with a freshman film student, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true. It can ruin you. In fact, I think later on in, in my uh, path, I've tried to be able to put on the listener's mind yeah, you know, and hear it as a consumer. Hear the end result as someone who's not dissecting it, because it's so easy. As we learn the sort of uh, machinery behind the curtain, it's there, there's a certain comfort in in being able to interpret and and dissect what's happening, and we have to guard against that because it's almost it can be ego driven. It can be like, oh well, I know how they did that, and this is how blah blah blah. And we feel good because we understand that. But in, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's that thing good. about like, the, is the sausage taste good? Great. Don't don't ask how it's made. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's wanna... the thing. I mean, and, and I never like I'm like, don't think I'm like the great anything. I never became a producer. You know, but like I'm saying, I just know what I like mm-hmm. as, as, as a person. So it's almost like cooking for your own food. Like, you know what you like. But like, I, I get why people like other stuff. Right. I just know how I'm like, oh, I think for me and my personal taste, like, and I know my like things differently anyhow. So, so they hear these different sounds and the changes and stuff or the production. Right. And there's still albums to this day. Like, in, you know, I agree with you. You still have to step outside of yourself to kind of hear what other people like and why they like it. You know, it's, it, it's very personal. Uh, what is that saying? You can, you can play a song to a thousand people and uh, each person will hear a different song, you know? So, so it's really how it goes through their filter and their life experience and how it touches them that really defines i think the value of the thing we as artists all we can do you know like a like a chef to continue the food analogy we can present the food but we're not restaurant critics we can't decide what's good or bad that's not our job our job is to create and to put it out there and to be as authentic and real and honest as we can with our product and and hopefully that human element will connect with somebody right at, at some level but you're right I, I, about technology. There is there is an important thing, especially with modern production. And I guess you could say this about if you expanded the definition of technology to include whatever instruments were available at the time. Yeah. You know uh, that that's always an important thing. You know, 
in, in cooking, it's the same way. You know, if you want to make Indian food, like you need a, a tandoor oven and, and you need certain spice blends and certain clarified butters. And then when you use those authentic ingredients, then whatever you do has a degree of authenticity to it. You know, what I love about production working with artists is that we make that a conscious choice. I'll be like, all right, this, this album uh, evokes this certain era, this certain sound. So let's choose our technology that reinforces that, uh, that idea, that message, that sort of uh, concept, you know, it's a lot like picking um, the, the frame to a piece of art. You know, if you have a beautiful classic Renaissance painting or something, uh, you're not necessarily going to put a thin metal frame around the edge of it. You know, it would seem incongruous and that might be part of what you're getting at too. And that's to be considered, but usually you'd want to have something that sort of matched it or enhanced the art, you know, and I think that's a very valuable uh, rule for technology. And, you know, nowadays. I, I agree. And I think that most artists want to have the matching frame and the matching sound or whatever. And then you have the other artists will, will go like, nope, you know, it's a million dollar Picasso, not even a printer frame, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? That will right. go the left turn. I mean, right. and that's the thing. And that's one thing that I appreciate the most, like when artists that were more established and then they have a new album now and you hear, and it feels like they have a leg in both things. Like it still has their sound but it also sounds modern without them trying to sound modern. They've taken on the instrumentation and the technology. You know, that makes yeah. sense. Like, absolutely. I, I can say like the new, um, we'll go for a lighter band. Um, I like the new Crowder house album. Okay. The production is great. And it has the feel of the old because you know, with them, they have that, the big thing with them is a lot of space in the songs and it has a very haunting, you know, to me, that's how I hear it. Right. But it has that in a way, but not 100%. But then I also have new instruments and always playing instruments and trying things and recording. So, that, you know, mm-hmm. so the new album has, it feels like some songs could have been like from the 60s with um, Burt Bacharach and then like the next song has an influence of the horn, you know what I'm saying? And it's fantastic to have those, those, those two worlds. I love right. when bands do that. One of the things that I've, I've, as I've gotten older, like with those bands that you feel like you're, um, it's a certain sound. When I lost, I uh, lost my hearing was going bad, I got hearing aids. So I've been hearing it and you, you for so long, you start not hearing things. You don't realize it. Right. So I fall in love with music again. You start appreciating things. So then that time, and then after I started playing guitar, I started doing these deep dives with music that maybe I thought was boring growing up. And maybe I still wouldn't uh, like now. Right. You, down, you play guitar or with my hearing aids and you're hearing things differently. You're older, your ears are fresher. You go like, I get it. I get why people like it. I'm right. still not going to listen to it or whatever. Right, right. But you can, but, you grow an appreciation for it. And I'll actually go through the catalog. I'll go through so I know what I'm talking about because I hate when people say something they just, you know, they know what they're talking about and they really mm-hmm. haven't listened to it. They heard one song. I'm like, I've actually listened to their older stuff. Right. You know, right. and it gave it a fair shot and say, you know, and like with guitar, it's the same thing. You play a song, you ever play a song that you don't, you're like, yeah, kind of boring. It's in the elevator. Then you actually play right. the instrument, the song, yep. and you're like, oh, you're like, oh, this is kind of guilty fun. It's just like candy. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're buying candy around reference. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it reminds me of uh, another analogy I like to use, which is the difference between the the, the song and the production, right? Um, if the song is a beautiful model, like a runway model, right? Then if, if it's that great a song, you can pretty much hang almost any kind of production off of it and it's still going to sound great. Um, you know, a, a beautiful model can walk down the runway in a burlap sack and look sexy and attractive and desirable and all those things, you know, uh, the same way a great song can be produced in many different ways and still be great. And I think the evidence to that is uh, how many great classic songs can be covered by so many artists 
and still be relatively successful. Uh, of course, the other side of the coin is where you have someone that's uh, a total jerk, but they're dressed in an amazing $3,000 suit. You know, it somehow that just because the suit is so great doesn't make the, the makes make you want to hang out with them anymore. You know, <laughs> so so I, I think, you know, that shows us that production always serves the music and maybe in the crowded house thing, it's it's still them. You know, it's still those those human beings writing those songs and performing those parts so much of it is in the fingertips right um but then you know do you expect those people to still dress the way they did 20 years ago no they're gonna have that person right (laughs) so you're gonna find new new styles new clothing um new glasses whatever it might be and when you see them again you're like hey there's my old friend but they've got a new you know uh outfit on or a bucket hat or whatever it is that's uh happened right now and so it's interesting to see them in their sort of updated form but you still have that um that care for them because it's the same person you know right and i think it's hard there's that's that's when you get to the school of audiences where you're like some people just don't want to let it go and some people unless people like i appreciate like the fact that for their it's a close it's they're like they're always adding new instrumentation and new, new new things, new new flavors and layers to their music and trying different things. You know, yeah. now now in the band are his sons that are two talented musicians. So you got a new energy. And you know, when you get family members that sing together, it's the best. Yeah, right. The yeah. voices of family members that can sing. That all right. Absolutely. We're talking talented. It it's it's the best. You know, yeah. when you have that energy. Yeah, exactly. But when you have that all together, it's it adds to it. So. I'm very supportive of an artist growing and changing and doing, doing something different. Uh-huh. But then sometimes the, the audience is like, it's not my favorite, but then it's not going to, you know, some records. So the challenge is how do you become a new artist, you know, an established artist and grow as an artist. And so be honest to you, cater to your audience, yet try to grow because if you don't sell any albums. You can't fold a tour and what, why even record? Right. It's, it's an awful cycle. You know what I mean? So you're, you're, you're kind of trapped. I think it was Peter Frampton that said uh, everything started to go south when he started trying to make the music that he thought his audience wanted to hear, you know, and that's that's an important thing as an artist. Um, And it requires us to, uh, you know, check in with our priorities. Are we are we doing this to make money? If we if we were lucky to have a hit, are we chasing that hit? Um, Are we trying to break out? You know, there's some artists. It just came out with new records uh, this past few weeks or months, and I won't mention them, but you can tell that they are like, okay, the first record was a breakout record, and now they're going to bring in all these ringer songwriters and all these top people because the the label and the management and everyone is pushing for the next big hit, uh, which to me ignores what made it great to begin with, which is the authenticity and maybe the the lack of such pressure and expectation, you know, and I, I think that can ruin a product. You know, I think that in, in the band, in the band too. You know what I mean? If, you know, I think it ruins a band because say you get the band that has the one big album, mm-hmm. and then if they don't get help, and the audience expects that same album, in the band's like, I want to do this, or also other guys in the band are like, I want to write. You know, talking if I can about that, else and they're like, yeah, and, and I was like, guys, like I'm fine, but that I was my songs were the sound I got assigned, but right. okay, and then the next album's not do as well because everyone's right. writing, so there is a certain thing. So sometimes, or, or the band, you know, writes their own songs. Sometimes they need that sophomore one that go down. And then they have their successful third, right. fourth. They can build off it. Right. Then when you could do that, you know what I mean? The hero's journey where, where things sort of, you know, the the, uh, the Empire Strikes Back chapter, yeah. you know, where things kind of go a little south. <laughs> I think you need the scars to kind of, you know, appreciate it as you go along, you know. 
if you get well, the home run, it, you're not going to. It does help. It does help. That doesn't mean it's a prerequisite, but it can it can help people to refocus. You know, uh, some people say that that success is actually more of a curse, and then failure is the greater teacher. Uh, when you have success, you tend not to uh, analyze. You tend to just accept it at face value, or even worse, give yourself credit for it. Uh, and and then you tend to grow less. You know, whereas those that experience failure. And I've had more than my share, that's for sure. It, it certainly makes us uh, assess and analyze and sort of say what what what, ha- what happened, what can we do better next time, what's what are the priorities, what should they be, what were you know what missteps did we make, what should, what pitfalls can we avoid next time, all of that stuff. So hopefully we become a better artist in the process. So you know, with your personality, you're pretty laid back. You kind of blend in. I feel probably with your artist. What is the challenge now when you go in with your personality and, and working with them on their songs? Because you do a little both, right? You write your own, you write jingles, and you also work right. working with the artists. Right. Is there a, I mean, do you step back sometimes? Do you kind of, how do you balance that, you know? Well, the cool thing is, is that every artist is unique. And some artists require a firmer hand than others. Other artists, uh, it's a, a pep talk, and you know, and 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 they're on their way. Um, some artists require really rolling up the sleeves and, you know, popping the hood and getting in there and doing some serious work. Um, a big part of it, I think, is, has to do with sort of, well, how do I say it? Like, having a vision. I have to have a vision for the project before I take it on. And what that means is I have to, hear the final results in my head. I'd say about 80% there. I try to leave about 20% for it to teach me what it wants to be also. Oh, okay. But, but, but I think the vision is really important because, and I won't take a project if I don't see a vision that I think uh, is great for that artist and that artist's songs, you know, I think, um, and, and that vision could be as simply a matter of, Tracks sound great. We're just going to give them a, a really kick-ass mix and we'll be done, you know, versus other artists who bring me demos and, and scratch vocals and say, you know, let's, let's help me do this, you know. So I'm, I'm very conceptual in that approach. I have to have the big picture first because, you know, there's a saying, um, if, a, if a farmer wants to plow a straight line, he stares at the, a point on the horizon knowing full well he'll never actually get there, right. you know, but it, what it does is it gives us this uh, focal point so that, you know, when it's three in the morning and we're, and the guitarist has an idea for a crazy solo and we're not sure, I mean, it could be good in and of itself, but to me that must serve the bigger picture. And so ultimately that's the litmus test of, of what we're working on and how much effort is going into it is, is it helping us get to the ultimate goal? Not like, oh, I got a new uh, guitar pedal or a new plugin and a new uh, virtual synth. I want to, I want to use it. You know, that's not really enough of a justification uh, for it. It has to serve the greater good. And with with some artists, uh, like I said, it's uh, it's just uh, encouraging and helping them in the right direction. And with other artists, it's really getting in there and co-writing and, and doing a lot of sort of, but, but even in that process, it always references to where we're aiming for with the big picture, you know? And so the first discussions I have with the artists is 
where are we going with this? What is your what are your hopes and dreams and goals with this project? And and here's what I see and how I think this could work and what would be interesting. I especially love the combination of something that's referencing something from the past, but also some new, slightly different variation on yeah. it. Right. They say um I keep using the food analogy, but to me, they're very similar. Uh, no one wants a completely new food that they've, you know, blue squares or whatever it might be. You know, even, no matter how good it is, whatever. Most most people are interested in just a new flavored hamburger. You know, something that's like familiar to them, but also new and different. And that to me is, is uh, one of the perfect balances you can try to achieve, which is something that's reminiscent, but also new and, and different. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it totally does. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you put the, you don't have an ego. So that's the other thing we're talking about earlier. So you, you put the ego side and you're more of a support team and you can be like a cheerleader or, or, or the, the leader or the, the coach. Right. It feels like you're really malleable where you, your position will move around to what's needed. You have to be wear a lot of different hats. And, and, but there are, I think I've seen, I've learned it's really two schools of, of producers and engineers and they kind of whatever. There's one that kind of has their own vision of what they think it's going to be and how they're going to do it. And one that's kind of curious where it's kind of, you know, kind of go with what needs to be done. You know, and both of these actually work too. And some artists need the other strong arm or are right. okay with it. You know what I mean, it's right. just two, it's just two different ways of doing it. Well, and, and once I get an artist on board with the vision, that doesn't mean that every day is hunky dory either, because often the artist will maybe not want to stick with that vision or suddenly want to throw it out. And I can become quite the uh, taskmaster and, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily there to be your best friend. You know, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm here to help us get uh, to where we're trying to go. Another analogy that I love is that of the Sherpa. You know, you're the one that wants to climb Mount Everest. Fine. Well, I'm going to show us which way to get there and I'll do most of the heavy lifting, you know. And so it's like, oh, you want to take that other path around that side of the mountain? go for it but uh you know maybe not the smartest choice you know or but you have to let a, a lot of artists especially nowadays where a lot of independence and people have had to uh uh gain great personal resolve for their own vision and and sort of stick up for them for, the, for what they believe in and and it, it can be a bit of a fortress if you're not you know if if you're unable to uh break into that because there's so many shysters and people that are looking to use artists to self-aggrandize and to boost their own careers um, and at the expense of the artist sometimes. So I know there's a lot of artists that are very reluctant and girded against uh, working with uh, people in various collaborative capacities. But um, if you can... I can see that being a challenge too for you, right? Like you get an artist, I mean, step on you and you're saying, but I want to inject this for a minute. Yeah. You, you get an artist that comes in and they might want something different, but we're talking about you have a couple albums out or they want writers and whatever this. And this guy's like, I kind of want to do this, but I'm, I'm pressured here. Like, I mean, that's a new, a new animal you have to deal with. Like, how do you find a way to keep the label and have you, but also kind of, because I'm sure you would want to support the artist do something a little different too. How to take care of that is going to be a real challenge. It is, it is. And, and uh, if I'm working for a label, you know, that, that's the other unusual thing about the arrangement is because I'm being paid by the label, but ultimately that's the artist's money, isn't it? Right. And but the label will still look at me as as a, an agent to get them what they want, the A&R person. And to me, I have to identify early on is that is the artist and the A&R, are they on the same page? Do they even have the same vision? You know, 
I mean, there is a little bit of Jedi mind trickery there when it has to be, uh, because my goal is to always go for a win, win, win. You know, I want to uh, be able to create a product that I'm proud of, that the artist is proud of, and that the label is proud of. Because if, if one of those is lacking, then I think it's going to hurt the, the, the success of the project, you right. know. It's a good one. I think and the problem is with the uh, with the with the uh, the bank. I mean, I mean the label <laughs> and the loan <laughs> and the loan sharks. I mean, man, I mean, I mean agents yeah. want is 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 a, is a certain um, album sound that was a hit before. Whereas they're not going to be like, you know, you get you like I sound like just before, but it wasn't a hit before because no one is buying it. But now we love you because that's the sound people like. Yeah. So so as those, as they want their banking money. You're trying to be creative with a creative force, and and that that balance is just. It's you know. challenging. It's challenging because uh, you know there's a lot of factors involved. You know, there's a lot of different uh, influences and power struggles in that. I mean, if the artist has management, there's that too. Is the manager on the same page as the artist? You know, and and ultimately, I try to be a proponent of the artist first and foremost, because I, I tend to believe that if you are able to create product that is honest and authentic, then those, those aspects get communicated to the listener, you know, and, and there, I, I used to think about chasing a sound or another, someone else's work or a certain hit. And I decided that I can't do that anymore because I'm not being authentic. I'm I'm trying to be somebody else. And and I think artists if they have a if they have a good sense of who they are, which is a big if of course. Um but if they have a good sense of who they are and we can help develop that and nurture that because it can be very fragile especially early on, then then that ultimately is what helps sort of get everyone else on board. Very rarely is it uh you know a manufactured process where the label says you're going to do another you had a hit on that first record now you're going to do another one just like it and it's going to be just as big and i mean that almost never works so you know i think uh, that that pretty much proves it you know <laughs> well i think it's changed too i think artists now they're going to either come in they're either going to be 100 for a sound they want because they know when they go out and they do these songs if it's not you know new music a lot of them are, that's the beer break you know what i mean so like if they're performing right. you know any any genre of music you add a couple songs in depending on the audience, they're going to, you know, not like it. They yeah. really like their songs, their, their couple albums or, yeah. you know, that's for everybody. Well, it's important because I understand artists want to continually grow and evolve and what's new is exciting to them as well. But if they have an established catalog, I think it's important to not turn their backs on that either. Uh, and to respect it. You know, I don't like it when an artist like, uh, um, uh, you know, Radiohead says, we're not going to perform any of those songs off of our, we're sick of those, you know, uh, it, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, the Chuck Mangione, that, that uh, trumpet player, yeah. I was, I was at that steakhouse up on Mulholland uh, with stills in the crowd after finishing the record, he took us out for a nice dinner and, and he, he played a full set. Um, and then of course, for the encore, he's like, and now I'm going to play the song that bought me my house, that put me yeah. my kids through college, you know, and he had this attitude of, of gratitude about it, which I loved. It was sort of like, you know, because 
are we really the owners of the work that we create or are we just vessels that allow them to come through us? You know, and I think if you have an ego about it, you feel like you own that, then you have a right to refuse it. But if you were just a vessel and it came through you, then in a way, the only way I think is respectful is to be um, is to honor that, you know, how lucky were you to have this beautiful thing come through you that became a, you know, a cultural phenomenon, you know? And so I appreciate that. I mean, uh, Rush. Black, Black Rose remember. did it. Remember? Pardon? Black Rose did it. Did they? They did it. Now they're back doing it in their heads. But for a while, they, were, they wouldn't do any of their stuff. Right. Yeah. Just, that that has to be day. unsatisfying as an audience member. You, you go there, you want to hear the, the things that resonated with you emotionally, that represent a part of your life. Oh, I remember, you know, me and my girlfriend, we we're on this trip and we listened to this, yeah. this record, you know, that's really important. Um, I'll even take it as further. Uh, Alex Lifeson, the guitarist from Rush said that whenever he played live, he would play every solo note for note exactly as it was on the record. And that was because when you're at home and you were a kid and he did this too, he would listen to these records over and over and over again. And he would memorize these solos and, and everything that he heard on the record. And he went to see the band live and they would completely ignore what they had done on the record and play some other version. It wasn't as satisfying to him. And so he said he always wanted to give his audience members that satisfaction of hearing it exactly as they've memorized it and exactly as it was on the record. You know, uh, interestingly, in the brain, there's a, a certain dopamine release when the brain can anticipate what's going to happen next in music. One of the reasons like four on the floor dance music is so trance inducing is because of that, because there's this consistent, predictable repetition that actually is a little dopamine release in the brain. And so I think in a way, what he was giving to the audience is that dopamine of when you're air soloing, you know, doing an air guitar solo and you're following mm -hmm. along and everything is exactly the way you know it. There's an additional like pleasure center reward in there that works on us as humans, you know, and I so I could appreciate that. <laughs> I think it also people like it shows on that level to that audience that, yeah, they can do it. Like, you know, like just like the album. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully the album was done well. Right, right, feel. right. It wasn't all edited together. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, so you learn in certain bands and then, but then you get a certain type of audience that appreciates that, you know, like yeah. you get the Rush audience that totally has a certain standard, you know. Right. You get the, the joke when it's like 10,000 right. guys and four, right. four women come to it to appreciate the, the Rush show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, at the other side of the coin would be maybe a Grateful Dead show or a jam band where every night is going to be a different interpretation, you know, and, and that has more of a, like a jazz mentality where you're there for the happening. I knew someone who was a deadhead and he had like all the different recordings of all the different live shows, you know, I guess that's the whole thing. Um, and so for them, it was uh, understanding uh, what that um, January 12th performance in El Paso of that song was versus that, you know, that that's a level of connoisseurship that I was never. Um, I, I actually couldn't do it. And the fact that because they're jams to begin with, it's it's so loose and nonlinear to me. I couldn't even right. grab it, that one performance, like note for note and remember it. Right. And I have like five of them from like in different years. I'm like, I don't even know what I had yesterday. Do you, I'm like, do you know where my other sock is? Like, I just, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like a certain level, like, and it's not like it's challenging either. It's just like different. Some of it's just noodling. Sometimes there's moments right. of brilliance. I respect artists who are doing that. And it's, you know, for the longest time, it took a while to even grab onto that and understand right. the Grateful Dead, you know, audience and, and, and get it.
know, I respect right. it. I just, it's not my thing because songs just, I need a song. I need some and, meat and potatoes. Right. And um, I was the same way. I had an assistant for a while that was a, a, a rabid deadhead fan. And I was just like, I don't, I don't get it. What is, because these people would listen to just the Dreadful Dead and nothing else. You know what I mean? Just like, but they would just cycle through different performances and different uh, concerts. And and I said, you know, what is it about this? And he he educated me on it. He said, in a way, and this this is true to the roots of what the Grateful Dead came from, which was that they never claimed to be a great band writing great songs. Right. They were just supposed to be a soundtrack to your drug experience, basically a soundtrack to your trip. You know, and in a way, they were very good at that. That's exactly what they, they were, this um, sort of um, accompaniment to your experience. And I think those people that appreciated that can appreciate the dead more. Maybe for people like us that are focused on songs and, and these little um, crafted pieces of confection, you know, uh, and performance uh, are going to be disappointed in that, you know. Well, and, and I think we're beyond, I mean, we're the kind of people, we are absolutely just rabbit hole music people, you know? So it's actually just beyond just the, even the normal casualist. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's got to hit a lot of buttons for us to appreciate. That's for sure. It does. And, and, and unfortunately it's ruined some music for me <laughs> because of that certain, certain stuff. Now with your, um, kind of go back to your technology, have you found or created anything like, you've been able to do with some of your own instrumentation and, and actually bringing this into your own music as well. I want to segue into your own band. Like with your Hackintosh, creating your own sounds, have you kind of created some of your own soundscapes that maybe weren't out there because of your building of technology, you know what I'm saying? Or created yeah, a new I mean, uh, since I've been using synthesizers for a long time, I understand those languages. I understand the methods of sound creation pretty well. Uh, those are all the, the, the colors on my palette. But mostly for me, it comes from, I'm not really a, like a cycle through presets kind of guy. Like it has to come here first. So I have to hear it in my head and um, a collaborator, a drummer, a friend of mine from many years ago taught me this is like, hear it in your head first and then really get meditative and focus on, on, on describing that as explicitly as possible of what you're hearing and then do your best to bring that out. So there's two things. One is having the great idea, right? Hearing an awesome sound in your head and, and being able to hear it so specifically that you can describe aspects of that sound. And, and then having the facility and the uh, technique to bring that sound into reality, you know, and those are the two different things. It's one thing to hear a great sound, but if you can't, if you can't, uh, it's it's like having a great idea, but not being good at, at talking or writing. If you don't have the words to communicate it, then it doesn't matter if you don't have a great idea, right? True. I used to want to teach creativity just as its own thing, regardless of the medium. My, um, half of my family are visual artists, sculptors and painters. And I thought it was a good idea because I think that there's a, a lack of great creativity in general. But then I quickly realized that you need to have a craft. You need to have a, a, a medium that you are relatively expert at in order to express your creativity. You know, um, someone could have the greatest idea in the world, but if they're not a good writer or a good painter or a good musician or be able to somehow communicate that, to bring that into this world, then you need some 
modicum of skill at one of those in order to actually get that idea out, you know. So to me, having a great idea and the, um, the capacity to express it are the two aspects that have to go hand in hand in order to, uh, to bring that to reality. So yes, I can, I can focus and I can hear an idea in my head and I can, uh, you know, really dwell in that and hold it and develop it in its early nascent stages. And then I have the facility of all of my years of experience working with technology in order to say, okay, now what's the best way to bring this idea to reality? You know, is it FM synthesis? Is it analog? Is it sampling? Is it a guitar sound? Is it uh, strings? Is it me beating on a kitchen? Has it led you to create your own things? If you don't have it, you have the idea. Have you like created your own sounds or created things out of your, because you hear a different way? I don't have it. I gotta, I gotta build it. Right. Most of the time, most of the time, uh, if I'm working on a sound like that, I'll, I'll create it from scratch. And, you know, it doesn't mean I, I won't, uh, you know, I might bake a loaf of bread, but that doesn't mean I grind my own flour. No, no, I get that. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying, but you have a certain, right. And a, and a skill, but like, example, you see the Sherlock with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch or whatever, when he, he talks about, and then they do it and they break everything down really great. And he goes into his mind library. It's like this huge palace in his head. I imagine you have this like huge mind life where you just kind of go in and walk up, pull a book down for because you have so much going on up there. But then there's a danger of not being able to do pen to paper and a guitar or a piano and the simple thing because you have so much thought that you can do and you have so much right. sound. It's like the danger with someplace guitar and you, you get in the studio and right. you just want to just kind of smack you in the hand and be like, stop playing with those pedals. There's like at what point? But then the, then the other thing is you go to the Frank Zappa school and he did push it and he did shop it and it worked great. Right. It was the most beautiful thing you could do but some people do that and you never see them again and you have chinese democracy or you know what i'm saying <laughs> or, 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 or you i got, I got asked to work on that record and i turned it down <laughs> that would have been a good paycheck you would have had like steady pay oh man it was i was mixing a steven stills record at the village and i got the call and it was going to be me engineering guitar overdubs with with a guitarist out in um out in uh one of the like out near Pacific Palisades or somewhere out there. And I was like, I was already busy, but, but I thought to myself, there's like 10 engineers at least that have worked on that record, if not more. And for me, just sitting there hitting record while a guitarist, you know, that wasn't really appealing. Well, I heard to it me. got really weird. Like Buckethead actually had like a, a farm animal. So it's like, they finally got really like, like animal stuff in there. I mean, it was like insane. Like that way, it was Topanga. It? That's, that's what it was. It was Topanga. So you, that, that explains it. Right. Right. So I, I'm like, I'm like, just going to see like you know you know don't even put your soda down next to the board like to me and i'm like right. he's bringing like you know farm stuff in there and, and you know this no. and animal excrement and i'm like come on no but there are a few good songs on the album but, i mean but the whole point is you you just don't know where to stop and that's no. very important i i've worked with a few artists that were you know you have to sort of understand the power structure if the artist is very successful and uh you know that the, the the most powerful person in the room, then you're only going to have so much sway over the outcome. You know, the person's going to do whatever they want to do. You know, if I'm doing a mix for Steven Stills, I can get it up to where I think it's good, but he's going to make the changes that he wants to make because he's Steven Stills, you know what I mean? And that kind of stuff. But I want to get back to your earlier point about the uh, execution of technology and playing in the sandbox and how that can be a distraction, because I think many people especially those that are interested in the recording process or the production process um, fall into those traps 
they, they get off the path of the cul-de-sac of messing around with a synthesizer for six hours. Um, and part of it, it's twofold. One of it is that uh, it's easier because they might feel more confident in their abilities, tweaking some knobs and working on that mm -hmm. than they are in maybe addressing the real problem, which is that that song needs a bridge, you know, or something uh, basic. I got to the point now where I, I've separated song and production so much that any song I'm working on has to work with one instrument and a vocal first. Um, if it doesn't work with like a piano vocal uh, demo or a guitar vocal demo, then there's some fundamental issues that need to be addressed with the song. The other stuff, the production value stuff, it's very important, almost just as important. But for those of us that are producerly minded and technically, you know, we, we enjoy all of the aspects of modern production, we have to guard against that because that's safer territory for the person to go to. It's more soothing interior to be like, oh, I feel comfortable in my little sandbox playing with my toys. But it's, it can be an escape from addressing the real issue, which is the fact that those lyrics for verse two need to be rewritten, you know. And there, there is a pain. There's a certain pain that I will admit to about working on the hard stuff. Like it's hard for a reason, you know, anything worth doing is hard. But when you have to sit down with a blank piece of paper and do something that you're not comfortable with and that you're that is not your um, your your, uh, you know, your area of comfort, like people who are who are into computers and producing or guitar amps and stuff like whatever their technology is, you know, that's the so it's such a lure. It's such a safe comfortable place to go it's you know it's it doesn't uh it, it's it's back in your comfort zone so you there's a big pull to go there you know instead of addressing the the the, the important issues so yes it's very important that the song work on its own ignore the guitar pedals ignore the plugins and just get to the the heart of the matter and address that first and the rest of the stuff to be honest i almost look at that as a reward you know like okay, this song has, we worked out the whole structure of the song and the basic ideas of melody and, and lyrics, and it's all great. Now we get to come up with this really cool so sound for verse two. Like that's almost the reward. You know, you've yeah. built, it's like building a home, right? The, the initial stages of a, of, a, of a building are very boring. You know, girders, structure, doesn't look appealing. It's very uh, pragmatic. Uh, but you need to do that in order to hang all of your ornamentation on it, right? You yes. need that, that foundation. And then it serves its purpose. That's the icing on the cake. But sometimes you get songs that are just all icing and no cake. Okay. And I get that. Um, I also think there's some, some danger of like with guitarists that want to try a new sound. And they are accomplished and they can write a song. It's, it's in your nature for some people. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a great guitarist. I'm, I'm very deep. Yeah, I have a basic cowboy chord. <laughs> when, I got, when I decided I want to learn guitar, you know, with YouTube and stuff, you can do it. It was only a few years ago, right? Right. I got a guitar, and then I went on online and got and got a secondhand one because I wanted to learn guitar. And I took the second one and I took it apart, we painted it like because I wanted to learn how it worked. I got a book on how guitar it. works. So. Yeah, yeah. And they also learned I can't solder with crap. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. That's a different skill, that's for sure. It is, but, but you get the point. Sometimes. It's not because you're avoiding it because I was still playing guitar. You know what I mean? But uh -huh. you also want to go a little deeper. You're like, what other sounds can I do? What other, how can I push myself? Which adds to even more because when you're in the studio, it's like, oh, it's one more thing you got to deal with. Because right. then what else can I do with this? It's, it's good, but where else can I go with this? Where can I go to here? How, 
you don't push it. You know, that that's also the challenge, you know. Well, it's funny because maybe when you first picked up a guitar, it was all new and all fresh to you and and inspirational and uh, exciting. Um, and maybe after you did that for a while, uh, the initial sort of blush wore off a little bit. And you were thinking you got accustomed to that. You you raised your level of expectation. I know what this instrument can do. Now that's not quite as new and fresh. Let's see what else we can get it to do. Maybe you experiment with tuning. Maybe you try different uh, strings, or maybe you try a different guitar. You know, and say, oh, this is this is also a guitar, but it feels completely different, and you get a completely different tone out of it, and that makes you play differently too, doesn't it? And there's that really cool feedback loop between what you're able to do. Pardon the pun. Uh, with the guitar and and what what it uh, inspires you to do with the instrument too. Well, that leaves someone to cho- uh, don't like don't hit chasing forever. Me, I, I learned it now at this point. I'm like all these sounds or whatever, and then as I, as I learned now, it's, it's it's infinite. So I did like I did like the, the war games. <laughs> it's an old reference, right? Right. Calculation. <laughs> where you going? Like sound. What this guitar? What about this thing? What about this thing? Like nobody wins. Nobody wins. Right. Would you like to play a game? Right. So like literally, I realized that I'm never going to be satisfied. It just it doesn't matter. So then I'm like, what am I looking for? I want a guitar. I can do you know rock sounds and warm guitar, and I want a song where I can do like more metal. How can I find myself in the middle and then ask around to kind of find myself a meet in the middle situation? Because I think if you just go too deep. You know, that's, that is you it, it's the endless, endless, uh, bottomless pit. And that's to me where having the initial big picture concept can help uh, judge those decisions. Because if say you're working, you're tone chasing, right? And you're working on your amp and you're tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. And you, you get to the point where you've lost some objectivity, right? Uh, the, the way to always bring it back is to say, well, what am I trying to do with this guitar part in this song? What is the emotion we're trying to communicate and use these other um, factors to influence the decision you're making. That's the, the use the macro to help you with the micro, you know? So if, if one setting is more, I don't know, punky or whatever, and the other sound setting is maybe more refined. Uh, well, is it a song that needs a punkier you know, image, are we trying to go for a punkier vibe on this track? Well, then that can, that can help you because to me, there is no objective good or bad. It's literally, how does it serve the greater good? You know, like what's the goal here? And does that maybe a trashier sound is exactly what you need. You know, maybe we need to use a little cigarette, uh, what is it called? The um, cigarette pack amp, you know, or, 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 or maybe we need a giant Marshall stack, you know, all of those decisions, um, while we all have our individual opinions and we go and just try them out, it all has to do with does it serve the greater good? I mean, just like to, to keep beating the dead horse of the food analogy, you know, are certain spices good or bad? Well, you know, you can't really answer that if you're cooking, you know, uh, grape jelly is awesome unless you're making spaghetti. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, true. So so <laughs> it, it's all that. It's all relative, isn't it? So when you're doing that, so like he actually has a question. With an artist, if you say you think you have a better mix, an idea of the artist, would you say, have you done this? Like you do one version, like do what they want. And then like, say you do a separate one and then say, here's what I'm thinking. And then present them both to at least kind of be like, check them out. This is where I'm thinking. Where an artist can go, oh yeah, I see that now. Because yes. you can't always get outside of your own head. And that's not a bad thing. It's just how we are as humans. But you yeah. can say, 
this is your sound, like with Steven Stills. I, right. I've seen him before concert. I love him, so this is a great example. And you're like, I hear a little something different though. Mm-hmm. You know, and with an artist, you can say, hey, you, you know, is that something you would do to an artist that you've done? Well, you know, Steven is, of course, an exception uh, to most, yeah, I don't want to most say of him, my you know. experiences. Um, right. But yeah, I had I had a, a when I was mixing one of those records, I had a mix totally bumping that you know, like the assistant was jumping up and down. Everyone thought it was the best mix I had done on the record, and Stephen came in and he said, "I hate it," you know, and and, uh, and he said, "This is supposed to be a Motown song," <laughs> and I was like. Oh man, I completely missed it. You know, I completely missed the boat on that one. And so that that reinforced to me how important it is to understand the expectations and the vision of the artist. Of course, with someone of that stature. But in general, um, what I've learned is that it, it's almost pointless to discuss things intellectually when it comes to these kinds of decisions. Um, I used to try to convince artists that I had an idea or my direction was better or anything like that. So not only is it a waste of time, but it generates animosity and conflict where it doesn't need to be. My, my philosophy now is to always try everything. And so I find that if, if you can, it's so much easier to, to like, instead of arguing with somebody about whether it's a good or a bad idea, just mm-hmm. try it. And then if you're, if you're lucky, nine times out of 10, the answer will become apparent to everyone. And then and if you, not, you're not the bad, bad. You know what I mean? Then you don't have to be the one that's telling them they're wrong, which is, you know, that that gets filed away. You don't want to have a lot of those experiences because it it can build up if there's conflict later, you know. So it's really important to try everything. I never say no to any idea in the studio without trying it. Even if I know in the back of my head, that's crazy. That'll never work. (laughs) I always want to validate people's ideas and give them the opportunity to explore it to their own satisfaction because then once they've exhausted that idea and they come around and see that I was right all along, ha ha ha. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, that then uh, it's on their own terms and, and they appreciate that they went on that journey, on to that journey. instead of just me, you know, uh, telling them that they're wrong and having that be a interpersonal dynamic that I don't really want in the, in the studio. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. And it really can, it can really help flush out a song the best of the song on technology and songwriting and and, and an artist. Um, Actually, add to that, the contrapositive is that what if it turns out that guy's idea was actually great? Right. And I wasn't the one that was able to comprehend it. So then I step out of my own ego and I say, let's serve the song here and see uh, which works best. So we try the idea. It turns out to be a great idea. Well, then I don't have to, you know, eat crow or whatever either you know what i mean so it's all just in in the service of the track which i love that's to me the best way to be so with that being said how do you do that with your own music who um well i'm like how do you balance your ideas you know what i'm saying yeah no it's important i i um i'm lucky in that i have a pretty um pretty strong river of internal ideas there's like if I could clone myself into three people, I'd but arguably them. everybody feels that they have the strong version coming in though. Like I'm sure all your artists really, you know, love to their own ideas. You'd idea be surprised. Too. You'd be surprised. A lot okay. of a lot of people are um, either insecure about it or not even not e- not even developed in the in the sense of having a clear vision. You know, okay. some some artists are just more like, hey, I, I wrote these songs and you know I want to 
put them on my next record. Um, other make people them, do. <laughs> make them sound good. Right, exactly. Um, other people do have a strong notion. Um, with like my the current aerosol project that we just finished, I'm I'm very lucky to have a collaborator in a gentleman named Matt Brownlee, um, who uh, was an assistant of mine at one point, but then he went on to be chief engineer at Westlake, and he's actually got a Grammy for a big band record that he's recorded, and he's established and on his own too, and he has been a great foil for me. I think it's very important to have a foil. I, in every I think you project. need someone to challenge you. Maybe like, all right, that's good, but you can't. Exactly. There, there are some anomalies of, of artists that do great music. But I must just think as a personal artist trying to grow, you can keep writing out the same albums and new albums be, you know, at the hit maker, like, like, like Prince, for instance, and just keep doing it. But right. it, imagine if Prince had somebody sat next to him and said, no dog, <laughs> just once I, in a while. You may have happen? had that he, at some point too. Yeah. I, from what I've heard of you. <laughs> Never. Yeah, it's <laughs> not, possible. My, but I don't know. The point is at that level, because would have happened like to challenge you like if you so you have a, say you have a respected peer and you're like no and then like it could be like one level higher like one better but you've never mm-hmm. pushed yourself because you know that's your good running speed there's there's so many great analogies for this story first of all we know so many great bands that have those two remus and romulus fighting people right and yeah. and yeah i love it you're either trying to prove them right or you're trying to prove them wrong and it forces you to dig deeper and come up with something even better uh, the sports team analogy also works. Say you're a championship team uh, at the top of your game and you're playing uh, a, a very lowly team that's not going to do well. You'll find that your own performance will, will slip. You mm-hmm. kind of play at the level of your opponent. In fact, the word uh, compete or competition means to strive together, co as in together. So you, you require a formidable opponent in order to bring the best out of yourself. And I, I love that because, you know, you need to play against a really great team to see what you're capable of. And I think that works in the creative process too, to have someone that challenges you. And sometimes I do this, it's me and the artist and, and I'm the one that's challenging them, mm-hmm. but either challenging them to, to do uh, better, to call bullshit on something when it needs to have it called uh, to, to, or or just to uh to pick them up and encourage them you know if they're feeling down too but it is very important um and and matt has been that for me on this latest iteration of aerosol where i'll bring a song to him and his tastes are very um um stratospheric in 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 his expectations you know he's he uh doesn't uh doesn't do well with anything that's sort of middle of the road so so he's always pushing me further and further out you know, which I really awesome. appreciate. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great to have. You someone. need that. You need that Jagger. You know, Richard's push pull. I mean, you can't. There's a reason why they. Of course, they usually always a blow up. But like, look at some of the best bands, some of the best songs of the years that break up, get together. But look at the chemistry in some of those bands, and then look at some of the bands that kind of go. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no yeah. challenge. If, I mean, if it's a dictatorship, it usually becomes um, monochromatic, one-dimensional, and and relatively boring. boring. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think you need that dynamic. It's it's vital, and it's uh, it's, it's the formula for creating the best work you're ever going to create. You know, the Stoics say that every man uh, secretly desires to be faced with adversity because that's how we are able to find out what we're made of. You know, and that if you lead a, a life of luxury and no challenges, and we know this with artists, we have we know artists that have led very pampered lives and never really had to struggle through anything. And their, their music kind of reflects that, you know, they don't really have much to say. 
And then we have other artists with amazing backstories that have overcome incredible diversity. And, and these people, when they speak, we feel like they're coming from a perspective of, you know, having been uh, tempered in the fires, you know, and having come through it. And that, and uh, we love that. We love that as, as humans, that, that sort of uh, overcoming adversity is very important in the hero's journey or in, most movies and and stories that we uh, we like any any of us day to day. I I feel that in my my best moments when I look back at stuff, we're getting somewhere, getting to that point. You know, right? Because once you get to the point, I'm like, it's boring. Like, I know right. I see myself downhill on anything. You know, so now yeah. I see challenges coming up. I can actually get excited. I'm like, I know I don't want to do it, but now I have to do it. And yeah, it's kind of exciting at, at a yeah. level. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Because you know you're going to grow. You're no, you know you're going to maybe discover something about yourself in the process. Yeah. And that's, you know, hopefully what this whole crazy journey is all about. <laughs> with your, with your music, what is the end, end game with your, with your music? As far as like with COVID and putting it out and, you know, whether the videos are playing or, you know, because you have a mix uh, players on your album too. So that's always going to be a challenge. If you want to yeah. Just yeah. Well, um, you know, just uh, the, the, the story's been on a bit of a journey. I'll just give you a little backstory. Um, uh, me and Matt, have, I, I've released music under the aerosol rubric for a long time, but this particular incarnation started about 2018, 2019, when a longtime friend of mine, drummer Sean Reinert from Death and Cynic, I had done a couple of Cynic records and some work with his side project, Dion Spoke. We all, he had finally, uh, he had, departed cynic and so he's very excited to work on this new project it was going to be the three of us as this core we started writing all these demos and worked on all this material and um and then i i was in chicago at the time and then i came back here december 2019 and we were all set to uh put it into high gear you know we were going to finish the songs go in the studio record sean was very excited uh because he felt like he could really stretch out and do whatever i gave him carte blanche to do whatever because we're both conservatory musos and I knew he was going to come up with some crazy stuff anyway. Um, and then tragedy struck uh, in January. Um, he died suddenly. And so uh, we had to reassess the project. And in a way, I think he's still sort of, he's become a bit of the guardian angel of this project because although we have him recorded on a couple of songs um, and we were able to use those the, the other songs we didn't have him recorded on yet. And, and it was actually at uh, the memorial service for him where I met all of these other amazing drummers. And I realized that he was much more influential uh, in his circle than I had any idea of. I mean, you know, cover of Drummer Magazine and NPR did a piece on him when he passed. Anyway, so all these amazing drummers were there. And I'm thinking to myself, well... I think that maybe they would be interested in offering as tribute to him a performance on this record too. And so I I proposed the idea and everyone loved it. They thought this is great. We can finish this project. It became dedicated to him instead of a collaboration with him. And so I'm, I'm very lucky to uh, be working with, uh, we had Mike Heller from fear factory and Raven play on a couple of songs um, uh, Dirk Verburen from Megadeth and all of his other groups played on like two or three tracks too. And so now it's become this collaborative effort. Uh, we, we do want to play live. We're very much looking forward to that. Um, COVID was a, uh, you know, is and continues to be a, a mixed blessing. 
whereas we're all isolated. But at the same time, these drummers wouldn't have been able to play on this performance uh, on this record if they were out touring with their normal right. acts. So everyone was at home. Everyone worked remotely. Everyone had their home studio setups and were able to record. And, uh, you know, we were able to collaborate that way. So that's great. We're very much looking forward to putting t- the show together for live. Uh, hopefully when it's released this fall, uh, we can um, make that happen. You know, so it's interesting because ha- having been making records for so long, I still feel relatively uh, ignorant about like promoting and releasing because so much of my job ended when the masters were done and I'd hand them over to the powers that be, you know, and so that, that I look at it as sort of my my weak weak point which is that knowing what to do with the product once it's done and that's what i'm woodshedding on these days is learning all of that stuff too which is hard because if you're really a focus on just the integrity of the music what you said promoting yourself it feels like you're not doing that anymore oh you're it's, yourself it's a level. great I mean, challenge i used to early on in my ignorant uh self-important days as a as a young fledgling producer and mixer i used to look derisively at the other uh components of the music business uh you know that attitude of like well we're the we're the creators we're the artists you're just Mm -hmm. support staff and and you don't know what it's like you don't you shouldn't have any say and you know it's uh it's it's artist driven and and now i've come to have such an appreciation for how important these people are in the jobs that they do everyone from management label people promotion marketing even lawyers you know and and how that the whole thing is a machine and everyone plays uh, a role and are a cog in the machine. You know, the, the, the product, the artist is, the art is important too, but let's face it without all of those other things, you know, you're just, you know, singing to yourself in your bedroom, you know? And, and so I, I uh, now I have a much greater appreciation for how important those people are in those roles that I used to. And, and it's also a special thing those, in those roles. Not anybody, not everybody can sell. Like it's, there are people that are born to sell and they're okay with it. It doesn't bother them. It's not a moral issue to, to do right. it. It's just, that's just how it feels right for them. Like you feel like those people would feel awful in a studio, like to can, you know, do all the stuff and handle it. It's just too much. Right. You know, and, and what their, I appreciate, they, they feel comfortable at. A lot of them are, at the heart, they're, they are diehard music fans, you know, and, and they wanted to be in this business. They never fancied themselves, many of them as musicians or artists themselves, but they loved music so much that they made it their passion and they made it their career choices. And so I, I honor them, you know, uh, a, a rabid diehard fan is worth their weight in gold, you know, and for them to be involved in the project it's like having family involved. You know, you don't have to question loyalty. You don't have to uh, wonder whether they're, you know, doing it for the wrong reasons or anything like that. Because like managers, for example, a manager has to be basically an, an artist's number one fan, you know, and, and that's to me the, the, probably the most important thing. And if they're not that, they've probably got some other agenda, you know. <laughs> or they're not showing up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that's the whole thing. I mean, the manager is, I think it's the hardest job. You have to have a skill set. If yeah. you can in everything, you have to be strong and sensitive. You got to know some business and you got to know some creative, you know, 
a little bit. It's a little bit. You have to you have to have one foot in each world. You know, producing is that way a little bit. I have to talk to the suits and I have to talk to the artists. You know, I have to talk to the lawyers and I have to I have to work out that deals. That actually sounds more like Twister. Art. Yeah, <laughs> it can be. It can be, and, and it's quite. Put your uh, arm behind your leg and just not comfortable. You know, it's funny. Um, talk about you know the old idea of right brain and left brain and right brain creativity and left brain technology and logic and stuff like that. But um, early on, people like myself that were uh, interfacing with computers and music at the very onset, um, I was doing a research about people with these kinds of skills, people that use technology to create art. And what we found is that there's a tremendous amount of corpus callosum activity, which is you know that connective um, part of the brain between the two halves. And what they what it does is is um, eventually you get you get good enough at the technology that you can kind of make those like subroutines, so you can stay in your creative half and then send little commands over your corpus callosum to the other side of the thing. Whereas someone that wasn't so uh, um, accomplished and it might might have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to do something the the point is uh you get to the point where you don't have to think about that too much and i can i can draw on my work as a as a classical pianist because when you're or any any musician performing if you're when you're learning a part you're you're thinking about fingerings you're thinking about hand positions and all the technical things but hopefully when you get to the point where you've memorized all that stuff and you've memorized it with muscle memory in your hands you're not thinking about that ever again. They say the best way to be when you're performing is almost like you're just listening, you know, where you're not, you're not thinking about any of the technical stuff. You're just thinking about the emotion or you're putting yourself in the right frame of mind, you know? And so it's, it's great. I think people that are very good at those jobs have this ability to sort of dwell in one and then like communicate to the other one and go back and forth between them. And that's, that's its own skill, you know, a great manager, great, uh, uh, you know, person that works with artists, but also has to deal with commerce, you know, itself. I mean, th- those people are worth their weight in gold, I swear. Okay, so you know, it's true. This new project's coming out. Do you have a, a, a date for it or is it, where are we at with it? Not yet. I think we're uh, a couple of months out from it at okay. least. So I'm saying, uh, what's today? Early September. So maybe November, maybe Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas at the latest. Okay. You know, I guess there's a lot of lead times with uh, production, like vinyl and uh, stuff like that. And, you know, it used to be a three month lead time for releases. So I guess that would be a, a safe outside figure. So just curious so, before the end of the year. <laughs> but once I get my hands on it, well, I'll check it out and then maybe you can come back and we can talk about it. I like to we'll go through the song. We'll That'd be awesome. It. I'd love that. I'd love to break it down after that. So we'll have you back when your album comes out. I want to thank you. This has been awesome. A lot of thinking, a lot of brain stuff here. Thank you. My pleasure. It's uh, really been uh, enjoyable and uh, quite an honor to be asked to be on. Oh, it's the same, Mike, if I get you. <laughs>